Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hi, everybody. I'm John Donvan, host and moderator of Intelligence Squared U.S. Debates. And whereas normally this is uh, a debate, we're doing something different. You might have noticed a series of conversations with five very sharp thinkers on how we are shaping our public discourse today. It's all part of a new interview series from Intelligence Squared that we're calling Discourse Disruptors. My guests are going to be looking in new ways at complex and nuanced topics, particularly in how we process them and talk about them, with an eye on my part on looking toward reason and logic and the value of real facts. And I'm talking to them also about how we can all step away from the straitjacket of partisan talking points and also at the same time bring some civility and some substance back to American political discourse. So this is the second episode of Discourse Disruptors. If you missed the first one, where I spoke with former ACLU head Nadine Strassen and NYU law professor Thane Rosenbaum about hate speech and American law, you can find that right now online at iq2us.org. That's iq, the number two, us.org. Now, let's move forward on this one. My guest for this conversation is economist and author Alison Schrager. Alison, welcome to Intelligence Squared. Thank you for having me. I'm pretty sure I've seen your face out in the audience at our debates. I am like the biggest fangirl. I go (laughs) to every debate and I just, I, I love everything about it. In one sentence, what's some of what you love about it? It makes me think I learned something new and it's provocative And my favorite thing that ever happens is someone convinces me to change my mind. Well, that's actually something that we want to talk about. But it's a pleasure to have plucked you from our audience into the studio for a conversation really in our wheelhouse. The whole nature and quality of debate and conversation and what shapes our ability to listen and to think and to judge critically. So you, uh, for those who don't know, you're a journalist at Quartz. Um, You're co-founder of Lifecycle Finance Partners. That's a firm that advises on risk. Do I have that right? Mm -hmm. Um, You have a career that's gone a lot of places. Uh, You've worked in finance. You've worked in policy. You've worked in media. You're a journalist. uh, You were a consultant to the OECD and to the IMF. And now you've come out with a book called An Economist Walks Into a Brothel, which which sounds like the setup to a joke. So what's the punchline to the joke? I don't have an answer to that. People keep asking me that. And I once met a comedian who said he'd come up with something. But, you know... For me, when I when I came up with that line, I was thinking of how I purposely seeked out when I did this book. Maybe this is why I like the debate so much. People who would challenge me and take my what I thought I knew to new knowledge, and so I purposely seeked out situations where here's this thing I think I know, which is you know financial theory, and that I would end up in these worlds that would make me very uncomfortable. And would challenge what I thought I knew or take it to a new place. And so when I thought of that line, I didn't even, I know, I guess I knew it was a joke, but it was more in my head. I was like, I I was crossing the Rubicon, I guess, of in this new place that certainly made me uncomfortable, but mm-hmm. also taught me a lot. Well, what you just said is getting, I think, to the gist of my first question. I want to quote something 
uh, slightly paraphrasing that you wrote well into the book at the end of chapter six. Um, you write, we might want to seek out different viewpoints and be open to friendships with people who don't always share our opinions. Avoid groupthink. Form a team of people who approach problems with different perspectives. Attempt a civil political discussion with someone who doesn't share your opinion. How does how do all of these ideas end up in what is basically uh, a book that in some fashion could be called financial advice? Well, you know, financial finance is just the study of risk, right? But we face ambiguity in almost every decision we make. And so that particular chapter was about how we're really lousy at assessing risk and understanding probabilities. And really because we have a lot of biases and we want to you know, believe something is certain because it enforces our biases. And this happens in business. It could happen if, you know, your spouse is convinced that it takes 10 minutes to get to the airport, but you're convinced it takes 30 minutes. And it might be because one time he had no traffic and one time you had terrible traffic. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in both of your heads, you believe that there's this certain time, but really it's uncertain how long it's going to take you. So this is why it's important to talk to people with different viewpoints, because they can help us make better risk assessments, because they have that different point of view of what could go wrong or right. Basically, you're saying they might know stuff that we don't know. Exactly. Or have experienced realities that we haven't experienced. They definitely do, because everyone does. I mean, you only are living your own reality. So uh, you're always going to find people who have a different experience you can learn from. So let's step back uh, and and just very broadly look at what the book is about overall. You've already mentioned risk, which is a key thought that goes throughout it. But what did you set out to do in the book? Run us through the places you went, and we can go back to some of those places. Well, the initial idea was I was concerned as an economist who studies retirement, that people really weren't understanding risk and ambiguity very well. Um, I think people often say, you know, no one can understand risk. But I feel strongly that people can. We're just not giving them the tools. And I've I've also just been concerned about how there's just been this real move towards populism and certainty when we have a lot of ambiguity. So I study retirement finance, which is the study of risk, because finance is the study of risk in financial markets. But I felt like these lessons could be applied anywhere. So by retirement finance, you mean you study the question of how folks will put aside money for later in life and have money there and how that works and what's the best way to do it. Okay. Exactly. Which is really the most classic of all risk problems because it's how can you turn money now into money in the future Mm -hmm. and how much risk, if you take more risk, you can end up with more in the future, but you risk the possibility of loss. And there's a lot of things you don't know. You don't know how long you're going to live. You don't know what your salary is going to be. So there's all these sources of risk you're always constantly managing. So it's it's a very sort of simple, yet at the same time, very sophisticated risk problem. And, you know, being in in that world and seeing how people just weren't getting these fundamentals, I really wanted to help people understand risk better. Um, But I also, from my studies with different financial thinkers, started to notice that these same problems were everywhere. They weren't about retirement. They weren't about finance. They were everywhere. And I also just, I guess, had a curiosity about different industries. So I had this idea that I would travel the country and meet people in industries that had absolutely nothing to do with finance and actually I had absolutely no knowledge or expertise in and figure out how they work and how they think about risk and how they manage it and how they deal with ambiguity. Just tick off six other places you went to. So the brothel, which is in the chapter, um, criminals, uh, 
I went to a big wave surfing risk conference, horse breeding. Um, I uh, military generals. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's that's a lot. That gives yeah. us a lot to go back to. And your focus in all of this is looking at the challenge of dealing with the ambiguity around risk when you mm-hmm. don't actually have all of the facts that you might like to know what's going to happen in the future. Uh, but let's just talk about the concept of risk because you've already mentioned it's a word that people don't understand. I, I, and I'm not sure. As I was reading the book, I th- I kept thinking I saw risk either defined different ways or different aspects of it were being addressed. So on the one hand, you were talking about risk. It sounded to me in the, you know, sort of the layman sense that it means danger. Mm-hmm. But Risk also just seems to mean the chance of danger, which is different from danger. It's it's the probability. Is it will it happen? As opposed to the, you know, w- will I fall off a cliff? As opposed to is the cliff dangerous? And then there was just another aspect to it that it suggested to me that you were talking about risk actually means unpredictability mm-hmm. about the future, which is again not the same thing as danger, and it's not the same thing about the probability, but it's just about the the, the fact that it's hard to know what the future is. So, am I? Am I walking around the concept of what risk is, or is it all of those things? Well, you've pretty much just said our, like, sort of very nicely summarized our our very complicated feelings about risk. From my perspective, as someone who studies it in an academic or in sense, it is risk is a very clear definition to me, which is it is the whole range of things that could happen that you think could happen and the odds that they will. So it would be like a probability distribution. So it doesn't necessarily mean a bad thing. No, not at all. I mean, within that distribution, there are bad things. Mm-hmm. So it's the whole range of things, uh, but it's measurable. Mm-hmm. Economists think of a different kind of, un- of, I guess, not risk, but uncertainty, which is 19 uncertainty, which are the things you could never anticipate. So from our perspective, the future is uncertain, and, but there's a range of things you can anticipate, and then there's a bunch of stuff you can't anticipate. And risk is the things we can anticipate. It's our best guess of the future, and that includes good and bad things because you have to take risks to get what you want. You take risks for a positive outcome. I mean, you invest in the stock market hoping you'll get rich or at the very least have more money. Uh, but you don't invest in the stock market, although you should be wary of the fact there's a possibility for loss. So at least for the purposes of this conversation, we should not be thinking risk means dangerous. Well, I mean, you do expose yourself to danger when you take risk. That's that's the downside. Okay. But we can also say that risk has an upside. It does. And, and that's why you take it. But, it, you know, the reason why we associate risk with danger is this is a very natural thing. We tend to be more loss averse. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I, I think I go through the etymology of the word risk had always traditionally meant danger until... I think, you know, sort of the Renaissance, when people started to think about risk as something measurable, did the definition even really change? Yeah, you also write that there are some languages in which the root of the word risk means dare, take a dare, take a chance, which which could have the connotation of go for it. You know, you may not know, but but take the leap. Yeah, exactly. And is it that changed around the Renaissance when people started thinking about risk as something that would bring upside? Yeah. So... The brothel story, mm-hmm. the, the the title of your book, your first chapter. Mm-hmm. What were you looking for there? Where'd you go? <laughs> I went to Nevada. I went to um, a town just outside Carson City where I visited four different brothels. I went there before um, to do a story on negotiation skills because they have a fairly extensive negotiation training program to teach the women how to ask for more money 
because mm. a lot of women, myself included, have problems. You get intimidated asking for money in a negotiation. So do a lot of men. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I first went there for negotiation training, and I was really just floored by the business skills the women had there. And not only that, how much money they could charge. And at first I thought, this is just that they're great business women. But then I realized it was actually a risk premium, that they're able to charge this huge markup because they really are offering something very low risk to their customers. Usually, if you visit a sex worker, there's a lot of risk involved. I mean, you could get caught by the police. There's been a lot of very high-profile people caught with sex workers. You don't have to worry about that. There's a lot of disease screening. There's a lot of security. So people pay this huge markup. And a lot of people, as I said, just aren't comfortable breaking the law for good reason. You pay this markup to reduce all of this risk. I'm John Donvan. More with economist Alison Schrager when Intelligence Squared U.S. continues. I'm John Donvan. Welcome back to Intelligence Squared U.S. My guest is Alison Schrager. She is an economist, a journalist, a professor at NYU, and author of An Economist Walks into a Brothel and Other Unexpected Places to Understand Risk. We were just discussing that title where Allison discovered how, at a Nevada brothel, men pay sex workers a large markup in order to reduce risk. I asked her how this affects the women working at those brothels. They book a lot more money. Like, they uh, they charge three times the price for an equivalent service uh, in the illegal market, but they have to give 50% to the brothel and pay taxes because they are legal sex workers. And so they're also paying another, you know, 25, 30, 35% on top of that. So in the end, they're probably making about the same or less than someone who works in the illegal part of the industry. Plus, they have to live in Nevada. Plus, they have to deal with all the sort of hassles of, of, you know, a workplace where there's a lot of people and all the structure. But they also are seeking a low-risk environment. They also don't want to break the law. They also don't want to worry about having to screen clients in case they might be violent lunatics or police or all of the things illegal sex workers have to deal with. So for the purposes of your thesis, what did your visit to the brothel in Nevada tell you? Well, this central question in financial economics is can we put a price on risk? You know, because once you put a price on risk, you can sell it to someone else or you can reduce it. So when I was there learning negotiation skills, I was struck that there's even a price on risk for sex. You you also talk about you talk about this in the in the instance of the women. They need to know what they want. They mm-hmm. need to know what their goals are. And you talk a lot about this concept of the risk-free goal. Mm -hmm. So that was a a really fundamental argument in Mm -hmm. the book. So talk a little bit about what that means. Well, you know, I think one reason we tend to associate risks with danger is people often, you know, take a risk without really sort of thinking through what they want because we don't associate risk with progress or getting what we want. But really, the reason why you want to take a risk is you want to get something out of it. Like, you know, you want, uh, you know, a plush retirement or you want a particular job. So you need to be very thoughtful in what you're taking a risk for. Because if you're like, if I take this risk, there's a chance I'm going to get that and that is something you want, then, you know, the risk is much more likely to go well. So I said the women in the brothel, you know, were very clear what they wanted, which is they would like to do this work. There's a variety of reasons why. I think for, I don't know how many women I spoke to, dozens between the surveys I did there and the work I did in negotiation skills. You know, I've, I've, I've spoken to many of them, but 
they all in every single one is a different reason for doing this work. Um, but they're all very clear on what they're do what they want out of being there, which is I would like to do this work and I don't want to have to face any risk doing it. So in life, are, should we be looking for the risk-free alternative no. or, or at least know what the risk-free alternative is? We should is? always know what the risk-free alternative is. Mm-hmm. So, so risk-free is a, very, is a fundamental part of finance, which is it is how you can get what you want without taking any risk at all. So, for instance, if you want uh, to turn your $100 into $100 next year, you would invest, put it in a bank account or a treasury bill, which pays no interest. You're guaranteed not to lose any money. Uh, for the sex workers, it's, you know, working in a legal brothel is risk-free, but they give up a lot of their earnings for that. So it's always realistic to go for risk-free. Sometimes it's just too expensive. Um, other times it's just you're comfortable with a little bit of risk, so you're willing to go for more. But you should always start with thinking through what is risk-free to me because that, one, helps you clarify what your goals are and also helps you put a price and helps you gauge how much risk you're willing to take. Isn't it possible that you could want to you could want risk-free, but you also want the thing that you would have to take a risk for, mm-hmm. and you can't have it both ways. Yes, and I think this is where often people run into trouble. Um, they think something's risk-free when it's not, or they're frustrated they're not getting more because they said they wanted something that was risk-free. Um, and that's the that's the problem. It's like we, we all would like to get—in finance, it's the same trade-off you have anywhere else, which is the more risk you take, the more you can get for less. Maybe. But the trade-off is you have this possibility of loss. And if, if everything's risk-free for you, you're not going to get that much, but you do have certainty. And this is this trade-off. But often, as I said, it's not realistic. You don't have—we would all maybe like to have a risk-free retirement where we don't have to invest in the stock market and have any possibility of loss. But that's just most people can't save enough. You'd have to save a lot more money if you don't invest in a risky asset. And for some people, they can't handle loss, and that's their choice, and they have to save more. But for most of us, it's just not realistic. We have to expose ourselves to risk to get more. And have you had in your life as an economist, have you had a challenge in figuring out what the real risk-free alternatives to things are? I mean, is it challenging for you, as a, not as an economist, but as a human being? All the time. You know, it's, it's, I, say it's the, I say in the book, it's the hardest thing. It's, it's the most basic and fundamental risk strategy is being clear on what you want. But it's also really hard. I think very few of us are always like very clear on like, this is what I want out of life. You know, and I certainly, one of the reasons my career has probably meandered a bit is um, I've since become clear on what it is I'm searching for and the common thread between all these experiences. But I I certainly went through grad school unclear about what I was doing there. I knew I loved economics. I knew I loved studying it. I knew I loved the debate. I loved the rigor. But you loved you loved the material. So I'm going to say, so what's wrong with that? You you were doing something that you loved. Well, and this was the revelation I had later, which is you're in this environment and you love this about it. But you didn't realize I was really investing in one risk-free asset, which was to be an economics professor, which is a very nice, stable life. Uh, so that was your goal? No, but that was what I was investing in. Because you do an, a, a PhD program, that is the goal. Oh, that's what you get at the end. Yes, if okay. you do it right. Right. But then I got to the end. I'm like, well, I don't want this. Mm-hmm. Yet I've gone through this incredibly difficult, time-consuming degree. And in the end, the reward is something I have absolutely no interest in. So in the end, I, I after years of trying different jobs, I realized what I loved about it was the rigor. I love being an economist more than anything because... It's such an amazing field in that the economy is always changing and growing and 
I, I find it so exciting that when I was 20, I thought I understood the economy. Now I'm 42, and I think I understand the economy. And when I'm 62, I'll look back on how I am now and be like, I didn't know anything. And that's what's great about being an economist. You're always having your beliefs challenged and stretched. But I realized I didn't have to be a professor to do that. I was told in grad school I did because that is the goal. And that was the risk-free goal because it's almost automatic that if you get a Ph.D., you're saying I'm very high odds that you could would yeah, end up in academia. It's not like other academic fields. People, especially at good economics PhD programs, get jobs in academia. Uh-huh. Um, and once you have that, it's a fairly risk-free life. You know, you especially most people get tenure, and you don't have to ever worry about getting fired. And it's a very stable path. You know where it's going, mm-hmm. and it's a very well-worn path. And you're not saying there's anything wrong with that. No, it just wasn't right for me. I was willing to take more risks. You know, I don't know what I'll be doing in five years. But I do get that same excitement and rigor that my friends in academia do. I mean, we we hear risk kind of lionized and celebrated these days, particularly in the category of entrepreneurs. And, you know, there's there's the story about somebody kind of taking it to the end. And I remember a story about one CEO Mm -hmm. taking the payroll when he was almost out of money to Las Vegas and putting it all on red. And he won. And what a great story. That's a terrible story. Uh, It's a terrible story. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we we never hear about we never hear the stories about the people who took risk and got burned and lost. And there's more of them. Yeah, why don't we hear their stories? And and do we need to hear their stories? We do need to hear their stories because what my book argues, which is sort of this sort of nuanced third way of thinking about it, which is taking risks is good, it's important, it's how we move forward. You know, a lot of people argue our society is a problem that people aren't taking the risks they used to. Entrepreneurship is down. You know, people aren't leaving their parents' homes. Um, risk-taking is vital to our personal and professional growth and our economic growth, but it isn't like an all-or-nothing proposition. It's not like either you're you're completely into risk-free or you're this huge risk-taker. You can take managed thoughtful risks or calibrate your risk just so. Um, you don't need to sort of bet the farm for on your company um, you know, and be celebrated. I think a better story we should be telling about the CEOs who took just enough risk. We're very clear about what the risks were that were important to take and then try to to, um, hedge or ensure the risks as they went. So in the beginning of the conversation, when I quoted... um your your advice to get to hang out with people who might have different opinions from you. That was on a chapter about poker players. Mm-hmm. And what you were focusing on there was the fact that the winning poker players have figured out, are, are working on, and some have figured out ways to actually reduce the risk they're taking mm-hmm. by going through a series of mental exercises. Mm-hmm. And those exercises are aimed at them kind of cutting away the BS and and also importantly, cutting away their emotions, cutting away bad instincts to have uh, preconceptions. Mm-hmm. It, this is where it kind of circles back to what we're talking about with the public discourse at Intelligence Squared. But tell me, tell us, fill us in a little bit about the, the play, poker player you focused on and what he figured out to do. And then I'd like to land that in terms of the value of public discourse. Yeah, he's a fascinating person. It's Phil Helmuth, and he's a very famous poker player, um, and he's in part very famous not only for winning a lot, but for throwing these huge tantrums when he loses. Um, 
So this is my chapter on loss aversion. So you would think no one would be more averse to loss than he. But when he plays, he's actually very rational and thoughtful. And he has learned how to, I said, to do all these things, to cut through all the BS and be very clear. So loss aversion is, is when we're losing, we're more, we, we hate loss so much, we take bigger risks when we're down than when we're up. And that's bad if you're playing poker. You want to be... That's cons- established that when we're losing, we do take bigger risks? Yeah, this is prospect theory. Mm-hmm. This is uh, Danny Kahneman's work. Mm-hmm. So this is bad if you're playing poker because you want to stay rational. You don't want to take bigger risks when you're down and take fewer risks when you're up. You need to be consistent and thoughtful all the time if you want to, as, as Phil says, to win big. Um, but he is such a natural sore loser. I mean, this is not natural for him at all. So um, <laughs> it even talks about in the early days how he would pass out from exhaustion trying to keep his emotions in check. But he he does these things uh, First of all, he goes into every poker tournament staked, which means other people have put their money up, so he never has too much of his own money at stake, so that keeps him rational. And the risk is lower. Yes. Mm-hmm. And he also lowers the risk uh, by uh, cutting these little side deals like with uh, other people. When he's at, about to win a tournament, him and the other player will cut a deal like, all right, well, if I win, I'll give you some of the money, so you have as said, less to lose, and they're guaranteed some winnings. And also, he talked a lot about how you know, it was a very strange story. He's telling me how he's like, you know, I really, I'm, I'm not, I'm a naturally arrogant guy, but I really need to stay humble. So he was telling me some story about how he just won some huge poker tournament. And someone on Twitter said, you know, you're overrated, you're a fraud. And so he's like, name all the people who've been better than I. And it wasn't, you know, him just being like boastful, like no one, you can't, he actually did want to know who's better than he because he wanted that little bit of humility. And is that because he wanted to study these guys? or um... No, he just wanted to be reminded that he's not the best, so yeah, he didn't get overconfident. Yeah. So it's at the end of that chapter that you say, and I think it's inspired by his tweet, you know, tell me, tell me who's better than me. You're, you're broadening this out as advice to all of us, not just in finance, but all of us, I think, in all discourse. Hang out with people who disagree with you. Yeah. Get people to challenge your ideas. So how, how do you think we're doing as a society at that? Worse and worse. Yeah. You know, it's, I mean, it, part of it might be, I, I think social media serves a lot of positive roles, but it's very easy, as I said, to ha- take a very insular world and be with people who reinforce your values. I mean, I personally follow a lot of people on Twitter I disagree with, mm-hmm. but I sometimes wonder if that's counterproductive because I'm always so mad that they don't agree with me. Yeah. And that, you know, they've made a a logically fallacious argument. This is just like, how could they make that argument? So in theory, I follow other people to help me broaden my mind, but I don't know if it works so well. So are you suggesting that your advice is not to be taken? (laughs) No, you should take my advice, but you should take it. Maybe Twitter is not the way to practice it. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, my favorite... But, there, but you can make choices of what, of what magazines you read, what, what sites you go to, things like that, and not literally who you're going to hang out with, you know, at dinner or at work, but you could do that as well. But, but it doesn't have to just be Twitter, what you're talking Twitter's about. Twitter's the worst place to do it. Yeah. I think you need to seek out really smart people you respect who you disagree with vehemently. I, my editor uh, at Quartz is very liberal, but he was telling me he reads the National Review religiously. He doesn't agree with a lot of it, but he, it's a, they have good arguments that he mm-hmm. disagrees with, and he grows a lot by reading those arguments. So, you know, you should find really good publications of smart people that you disagree with. Personally, my favorite conversations in the world are where I'm totally wrong. And Why so, is that? Because I learn more. I mean, I grew up, I said, in economic seminar culture where I was told I was wrong every day of my 20s. 
So I'm comfortable with that. Some people are to varying degrees. But if someone proves you wrong, you've learned something. But isn't it hard for people if they've invested time and effort and years into holding a particular point of view? Isn't it, isn't it if nothing else, just kind of embarrassing to acknowledge that you were that wrong for that long? And isn't, you know, don't you want to hold on for that reason alone? It, it depends how you handle it. I find that people are most impressed when people concede, huh, I never thought of it that way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're never completely wrong. You know, everyone's right to some degree, has some kernel of truth to what they're saying usually. So if it's like, I never thought of it that way and that deepened my understanding and I've learned something and you can own that, I think it honestly shows a lot of intellectual humility. And the smartest people are able to do that. You said you've changed your minds at our debates. Mm-hmm. It sounds from what you've just said that you're you're totally fine with that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's you know, I mean, I think I wouldn't say like I love it. But I mean, at the debates, it's a safe space, I guess, to change your mind. You're yeah. just in the audience. Um, but I mean, if you're publicly being debated, I imagine it's a lot harder. But, you know, it's sick. I, well, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about the audience at this yeah. point, which where you're not on stage having to do it. Mm-hmm. And just for people who might be listening who haven't seen our debates, I just want to explain mm-hmm. the way it works is that we, we have a stated proposition, a resolution, it's a statement, and one side of two debaters is there to prove the statement is correct, and the other side is there to prove the statement is incorrect, and we debate over three rounds for about an hour and a half, but before the arguments have even begun, um, and you've seen this a, a bunch of times, the audience votes to tell us where they mm-hmm. stand on, the, on this resolution beforehand. And then afterwards, we have them vote a second time. And we give victory to the team whose numbers have changed the most in percentage point terms. So that, that mechanism depends on people changing their minds. And they do every single time. Mm-hmm. So that's how we have a winner and, and a loser, in theory. I, I honestly actually don't think anybody who loses a debate has actually lost the debate yeah. because, you know, they, they, they've, they've had an hour and a half to put their ideas out there and to have them tested. But... Um, I, so I was bringing it to you as a member of the audience. Is changing your mind difficult, or is it actually kind of kind of a thrill? Well, uh, it's a thrill. Although I've got to be honest, I uh, probably change my mind easier. I love the debates where I know absolutely nothing about the topic, uh-huh. and I'm a lot more easy. I mean, even I, you know, who like to think that I'm open minded, if it's an economic question, I'm a lot harder to convince. What are What are the other lessons from your study of? Um, of the way we think about risk and the way to start thinking better about risk that relate to the quality of the discourse we're having. Let's, you know, for example, let's bring emotion into Mm -hmm. it. It seems when you're talking about risk, emotion should not be part of the part of the calculation. Do I have that right? Well, it's hard not to. I mean, we have such strong feelings about loss and winning. And I think we we worry about risk the most when we feel the most strongly about something we don't want to lose. Um, I would like us to live in a world where we make these completely dispassionate risk assessments, but, you know, that might not always be realistic. But I think that's an important knowledge to have of what do I feel comfortable with losing and what ri- – and I think that can help you guide knowing which risks you feel comfortable taking. And that's an essentially an emotional check-in? It's an emotional check-in. I mean, also, I mean, I often – wonder if one of the reasons things have gotten more heated and we see more populism is that people are so emotional about the risks we're facing. There's a lot of evidence that times of uncertainty in the Middle Ages, usually around um, weather patterns that caused variable crops, 
there's a high correlation with those periods with more witch trials and persecution of Jews because you see a lot more persecution, you see a lot more populism when we live in uncertain times. And we are living in uncertain times now. Certainly the economy is going through a big transition. Economist and NYU professor Allison Traeger. You're listening to a special episode presented by Intelligence Squared U.S. Debates. It's the second in our series that we're calling Discourse Disruptors. Alison Schrager is the author of the book, An Economist Walks into a Brothel and Other Unexpected Places to Understand Risk. When we come back, Alison will be telling me about other lessons she learned in unexpected places, including how economists and generals thought they had cracked the code on eliminating risk in wartime. I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. Welcome back to Intelligence Squared U.S. My guest is Allison Schrager. She is an economist with a Ph.D. from Columbia University. She's now teaching at New York University. Schrager has consulted for the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development and also for the International Monetary Fund. She's a co-founder of the risk advisory firm Lifecycle Finance Partners. She's also a journalist at Courts and author of the book, An Economist Walked Into a Brothel and other unexpected places to understand risk. Before the break, Allison had just told me that in uncertain economic times, populism and persecution tend to rise. There are a lot of reasons for uncertainty in the world today. And here at Intelligence Squared U.S., we have debated many times on topics like artificial intelligence or the trade war with China or automation and the rise of the gig economy. Alison Schrager also studied the Industrial Revolution, and she draws some comparisons with these trends. Over 150 years ago, men were the primary breadwinners. They were used to moving from job to job. At the time, they did not work for one person day after day, year after year, which is now a reality that we've become nostalgic about losing. As Allison told me, it was at one time a real battle to get men away from the gig economy, although they didn't call it that. It was it was hard. I mean, it it seems really ironic to me now that we associate that with this loss of masculinity that you don't have that job to go to, because back in the early Industrial Revolution, it was humiliating for a man to go somewhere and have some guy who he wasn't even related to tell him what to do and where to be all day. According to economic historian Joel Mulker, who studied this, he he tells me that universal education was largely came about because it was largely for social conditioning. They were trying to break the will of all of these boys and, exactly. and get them ready to have to go to the same place every day. And yeah, to condition them to sit there all day and be told what to do. Because it took a genera- a couple generations to even hire men. Initially, factories hired women and children because they were more compliant. Mm-hmm. But it took it's generations of breaking down men before they would be so compliant. So now it's like, we're like, oh, well, you know, you're not going to have a factory job anymore. This is like the end of men. But really, it could be just a return to the way men always wanted to work. I mean, it's, it's so interesting in what it says about how we frame things that we think are the way they are because they're meant to be the way they are, Mm -hmm. especially if they're directly in the rear view mirror, like um, nine to five jobs or, 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 or factory, reliable, safe factory jobs. And again, I think what you're talking about, what your work goes to is the idea that we can have a lot of certainties Mm -hmm. about things being the way they are uh, that are not based on anything more than things like confirmation bias and uh, assumptions that the that the present is like how the past was and it's all sorts of things like that. Yeah, I mean, we, we prefer certainty and, you know, our minds want to go there. Um, I, said, I think embracing ambiguity really is helpful. First of all, it makes you more open to different points of view. 
because the world doesn't have to be exactly as you're going to see. You realize a range of things could happen. And also it helps you prepare and it can make you more open-minded. You can look at gig work as more of an opportunity than sort of longing for something that maybe people didn't love so much anyway. Do you think, to get back to the question of emotion, does emotion have a place, a legitimate place in public discourse of issues? Of course. I mean, people are really passionate about different issues, and they should be. I mean, a lot of these issues really impact people's daily lives. You can't expect people not to be emotional about where their children go to school and the quality of education they're going to get. Can there be real information and emotion as well? Certainly. Um, I think, you know, you want to take a step back and, you know, try not to have emotions drive your decision. But, you know, there certainly is information in that. Um, One of the places you also looked at was... um, military decision making and 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 you've said that that actually yielded a lot of useful information about getting along in life and also communicating with people. So that was fascinating. I interviewed H.R. McMaster right before he went to the Trump administration. You know, all the different chapters, I knew in advance what the subjects would be, but I didn't know what the stories would be. And I always knew that the last chapter, which is, you know, risks you can't measure, that uncertainty would be the military because they put so much energy into risk planning and their risks never go according to plan. And I discovered there was these huge parallels between financial markets and military risk, and that economists for years thought that we had cracked risk. We called it the great moderation, that policy was so good we would never have a bad recession again. And around the same time was the revolution of military affairs, where the military thought, all right, we have the answers, we have the technology, that war is going to be so effectively very low risk, and that there'll be few casualties, it'll be quick, it'll be clean. I think this largely came from the first Iraq war. But Both those assumptions turned out to be terribly wrong. I spoke to HR, who is well-known for being in the Trump administration now, but before that, he was actually a very well-known risk scholar for saying, you know, you can't know, you can't always measure risk. You can't always anticipate everything that could happen. So how do you deal with risks you can't anticipate? things you never thought. And that, honestly, is all about humility. You know, we all want to feel like we can plan for every contingency, but what you have to do is hold on to that little bit of flexibility and know when to abandon your plans when you need to. You you put a book out there that has a lot of contentious ideas, a Mm -hmm. lot of daring and challenging Mm -hmm. ideas. Did you have the experience that people read your book and changed their minds about things? I don't know. You know, one thing that I found surprising is so many people tell me the ideas are so basic. Um, which I'm like, really? That was a seven-year postdoctoral training with a Nobel Prize winner. You think it's basic? But um, I guess I didn't change their minds. But for other people, you know, I, I hope I did. I mean, I have less the sense that you're trying to change minds and more the sense that you're trying to help people. Yeah. Well, I think it's it's the policymaker in me. It's I don't feel like I want to tell people what to think. I want to tell them how to think, and how because I don't know their values, and I don't know. You mean their, how to think well? No. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know their values. I don't know their life experience. I just want to give them the tools to make better decisions that are best for them. So you mentioned in the beginning that one of the places you had visited was a um, a kind of risk reduction. Mm-hmm conference for surfers who surf the really big waves. Mm -hmm. Now, first of all, tell us, for those who aren't surfers, what the really big waves are. So a wave that's more than 30 30 feet, and the biggest one I guess anyone's ever surfed is 80 feet. Mm -hmm. So waves the size of a decent-sized building. So they're really dangerous. Very. Because if you get under one, if you fall into one, you can get stuck down there for 
to the point where you drown because you, you can't get up because the water is so deep. It's fu- pushing you down. There's another big wave behind and it's it. And tremendous energy when a wave right. is that big. Right. So you talk about how you, you equate this to insurance, but that actually there was a movement in the, wave, in the big wave surfing community to create a kind of insurance against that sort of outcome. Yeah. And it's interesting. Um, so first they have these conferences regularly to discuss risk techniques. And I met the guy who is a really passionate, self-taught risk scholar named Brian Kiolana, who brought jet skis to big wave surfing, which are effectively insurance in that if you wipe out, the jet ski is there to rescue you. But then what's interesting, and I get into this in the book, is anything that can be used to reduce risk can also be used to enhance risk. And jet skis are also used that way in that you can use them to rescue you if you wipe out, but you can also use them to push you on a bigger wave. So now you know, before jet skis, it was incomprehensible someone could surf an 80-foot wave. Now you can have a jet ski push you on one and, you know, you can take even bigger risks than before. And how is this like insurance? Well, insurance is anything that pays off when a certain outcome happens. Mm -hmm. So a jet ski rescues you if you wipe out. So in that sense, it is insurance. We can't can't have insurance about having civil conversation, Mm -hmm. though, can we? I mean, it's a different animal. It is because I think people... You're right. People fear being wrong. They fear that humiliation. I mean, I was really lucky. And one good thing about doing a PhD program when you're in your 20s is your worst fear happens all the time. I think once a day you're in a group situation where someone tells you you're wrong and you kind of get a thick skin. But I think it's hard for other people. I mean, it's still hard for me. I'm not going to lie. Anyway, I experienced it a lot. I mean, I think especially now people get so invested and form such an identity around their views Mm -hmm. that being called out and being wrong feels all the more infuriating. How does having an appreciation for and a tolerance of ambiguity ameliorate that? Does it? It does because you realize you don't know the answers, Uh that a lot of different things could happen. I remember when I was taking Russian class like Mm -hmm. 20 years ago, um, there were a lot of people who had never studied a language, and they were very uncomfortable with it. And the teacher basically said, you're, you're going to be thrown into situations, no matter how good you are, where you're not going to be, especially in the early years, because mm-hmm. it's years really to get a language, you're, you're not really going to be sure that you completely understand what the other person is mm-hmm. saying. But you're going to have to make a pretty good guess, mm-hmm. and you're going to have to convince yourself that your guess is good so that you can move the conversation forward. Uh-huh. And if you're wrong, they'll let you know. Uh-huh. But if your guess is right, then the conversation can happen. Mm-hmm. Even with the ambiguity, you can move forward. And I, I found it such a useful lesson that emboldened me to go out to Moscow as a correspondent for ABC and just blah, 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 blah. Just blah, 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 blather and blather mm-hmm. and blather and, and have the conversations that I could have. And, and the Russians were incredibly generous about badly spoken Russian, I found, and would correct me. But for the most part, they would play along with me because for the most part, mm-hmm. 80% of the time, I was having a, a, a functional conversation with them. So, so a tolerance for ambiguity really can, and I think you're saying this, be... A, a positive just for communication, just for getting things back and forth, even though it would seem the opposite, that a lack of precision would be a problem. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm curious if other people in the class were as open to taking that on. No, they weren't. They <laughs> yeah, weren't. see, that's the problem. But see, when you when you are open to ambiguity, you also are open to the fact you don't know all the facts, that there are things you don't know, that you don't know the future. And, you know, it, depending on how you approach a problem, 
there could be a lot of different solutions. And humility probably helps in that. And that's what, uh, what Helmuth, the card player, was telling you also, wasn't he? Yeah, well, he seeks it out because it's not natural for him. Well, Alison Traeger, again, your book is called An Economist Walks Into a Brothel. And there are a lot more stories in it that have a lot more to do with this whole question of risk, ambiguity, the way we talk to each other, the way we think, and the way we can get rational about things that seem irrational to us. Alison Traeger, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. This interview was recorded at Carnegie Recording Studio by Leszek Vucic. To learn more about Intelligence Squared U.S. or to hear more of the Discourse Disruptor series, visit us online at iq2us.org. That's iq, the number two, us.org. And for those of you who love a good Oxford-style debate, don't worry. You can check our website for our debate schedule on what's coming up and stay up to date. Subscribe to our mailing list at iq2us.org. Coming up in our Discourse Disruptor series, I'm going to be sitting down with the curator of TED Talks, Chris Anderson, and we'll be discussing how good ideas and persuasive speakers can actually change the world. We found there's a lot in common between TED Talks and Intelligence Squared U.S. debates. Our debates are generously funded by listeners like you and by the Rosencrantz Foundation. Leah Mathau is our chief content officer. Shea O'Mara is manager of editorial operations. Connor Kerfman is our creative and marketing strategist. Aaron Dalton and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. And I'm your host, John Donvan. Thanks so much. We'll see you next time.